Our guest in this hour is professor of history and coordinator of Latin American, Latino, and Caribbean studies at Salem State University in Massachusetts, my home state. And I used to go to Salem a lot. I'll tell our guest about that in a minute. Uh, She's been active in Latin American solidarity and immigrants' rights movements for several decades. Some of her books include, quote, How Immigration Became Illegal, A History of the Cuban Revolution, Linked Labor Histories, They Take Our Jobs, and 20 Other Myths About Immigration, and West Indian Workers and the United Fruit Company in Costa Rica. Aviva Chomsky is our guest. Professor Chomsky, thank you for joining us. Good afternoon and welcome. Good afternoon. Thank you. And I want to hear about your trips to Salem. Well, I was born in Fall River, Mass., grew up in Somerset, and every year when I got to a certain age, went on the uh, field trip to go to the House of Seven Gables and also the Witch Museum. And one of my, I used to love it going every year. It's amazing going back as an adult how not scary (laughs) that trip was compared to when I kid. Also, uh, my boyfriend in college was from Salem, and uh, I, you know, I think like he was related to the mayor back then. So, you know, I got to I got to know Salem pretty well with weekend trips to visit his family and things like that. But I love Salem; it's a beautiful, beautiful, uh, a beautiful city uh, in a beautiful state, my home state. And we actually share something with Somerset, which is two of the five dirtiest coal-fired power plants in Massachusetts that import their coal from Columbia, South America. New England Power. Yes, I know many kids I went to high school with, uh, and I think my Uncle Ronnie used to work there. Many of them uh, got very sick, right, as a result uh, years later because uh, they weren't taken care of uh, as employees. Well, we mm-hmm. have a lot. We, we should have drinks if you're ever out here or if I'm <laughs> ever out there. Um, uh, Aviva, um, let's talk about uh, Cuba, the United States, and uh, Latin America. I lived in Miami, Florida, and I say that because I have a lot of friends that either they or their parents – Uh, emigrated to the United States from Cuba. I know a lot more about Cuba than had I just stayed in Boston unless I were a professor like you. Uh, And I say that because uh, certainly in in southern Florida, you have much more passionate and stronger polarized opinions on this issue than we see uh, on a national level. So let's talk uh, first about the president's and, you know, this administration's recent attempts to normalize relations uh, with uh, uh, Cuba. Uh, Some people say... Well, doing this puts the final nail in the coffin on that Cold War. Would you agree? Um, So to me, the U.S. hostility to Cuba um, has to do with more than just the Cold War. So I think I would say, yes, perhaps this puts the nail on the coffin of the Cold War part of the U.S., long U.S. relationship with Cuba, but the U.S. relationship of wanting to dominate Cuba began before the Cold War, well before the Cold War, uh, um, you know, sometime in the middle of the 19th century. And uh, I think Obama's language um, in stating that we're going to be changing policy towards Cuba uh, and even um, on removing his language in removing Cuba from the terrorist list make it clear that the U.S. desire to dominate and control Cuba, which began before the Cold War, um, has not yet ended. Interesting. So you don't think this is about uh, being warm and fuzzy? Because some people would say this is also about securing our butts, literally, um, and securing our homeland physically, because Cuba's only 90 miles from the coast of Florida. Um, Well, I would say it's about securing our butts and maybe even our homeland, sort of, um, in the sense that 
the United States has been completely isolated in the entire world uh, with its hostile attitude towards Cuba, and that this isolation has become increasingly acute and difficult for the United States um, because of the swing to the left in Latin America, where the Latin American countries have become more and more assertive in challenging U.S. policy and U.S. hegemony and making it clear to the United States that they're not going to put up with this anymore. Now, that doesn't mean that they are, as President Obama just said, Venezuela was a threat to U.S. national security. What it means is that they are bringing diplomatic pressure on the United States, and they're not being obedient, as the United States expects them to be. Um, and. So at the last summit of the Americas, not the one that just happened, but the one before that in Cartagena in 2012, the Latin American governments got together and told President Obama that if he did not allow Cuba to come to the next meeting, they weren't going to come either. So um, in terms of the U U.S. reputation and the need to save face, so covering our butts in that respect, um, I think this was a really important move, um, in part because of the changing political climate of the, of the hemisphere. Do you think some of it has to do with the fact that most of us, I think, myself included, can't believe Fidel Castro really still is alive, but he is, um, and that his days truly are numbered. I mean, humans only live a certain you know, amount of time, uh, even if you stuff them and prop them in the corner like Norman Bates did with his mother, um, and that Raul Castro is very different with his brother and might be very different once Fidel Castro passes. Um, I actually don't think so. Um, I mean, I think that the demonization of the figure of Fidel Castro um, has, in the United States um, has in incorporated something of an exaggeration of his personal control of all things happening in Cuba. And, you know, for a long time in the United States, people were saying, well, as soon as Fidel Castro steps down from power, everything is going to change. And then permanently over to his brother Raul. Um, but the government didn't collapse. The country didn't collapse. There was no counter-revolution. Um, uh, pro professor, I'm, uh, professor, can you hold that thought? we got to take a quick break. We'll be back to continue our conversation with our guest and with you. Fireball. And we're back. Welcome, welcome back. Only True Democracy in Talk Radio of four and by you, the people. Our guest is Aviva Chomsky, professor of history and coordinator of Latin American, Latino, and Caribbean studies at Salem State University in Massachusetts. Professor Chomsky, thank you for holding and welcome back. Um, we, are, we are talking about, and you say, quote, the end of the Cold War may be, but not the end to a much more deeply rooted historical commitment on the part of the United States to impose its will on Latin American countries. And that is um, taking out of context what you said. It's the uh, first of a, a paragraph of a quote uh, from you, which I will get to the rest of. Um, talking about that, as you just mentioned before um, the break, would our will largely be about – control and power over somebody who is already physically, geographically a close ally, could be used as a, you know, close ally, and certainly could assist us economically where we have a deficit with exports versus our imports currently with goods. Um. Uh, you know, in the historical research that I did, looking at the U.S. reaction at the time of the Cuban Revolution, um, one of the things that really stands out is just how very openly U.S. policymakers said that U.S. interests are business interests. That is, we're going to determine our response to this Cuban Revolution based on how U.S. investors in the country are treated. Um, 
and I would say far more than than Cold War um, ideologies. Uh, what motivated U.S. policymakers to develop their um, unwavering hostility towards the Cuban Revolution and determination to overthrow it was that, um, in the words of one of them, Castro seems determined to put the interests of his own people over the interests of U.S. investors. Um, so it wasn't necessarily about communism or the Cold War. It was about the interests of U.S. investors. Um, and I think that uh, that the the commitment to what they call the free market economy and the privileging of of the the interests of foreign investors has um, has really structured and controlled U.S. policy towards Latin America for many many decades. You know, once again, why now? Why President Obama? I mean, certainly there have been other opportunities by both Democratic and Republican presidents, and you would think that regardless of the party, this control that you speak of would be desired. Um, well, note that Obama didn't say that we're going to stop trying to control Cuba. What he said is we've been trying to control Cuba through hostility for the last 50 years, and that policy has been a failure. So we're going to continue to seek the same goals by other means. Um, so, But I can think of three reasons why now. Um, that's a good question. One is the shifting balance of power um, and interests in Latin America. That is, the United States... Uh, was has been threatened with being just ridiculously embarrassed by the Latin Americans for holding on to this policy and the upcoming conference um, summit of the Americas. I mean, now passed, but at the time, upcoming um, summit of the Americas was an opportunity for the Latin American countries to truly embarrass the United States. Um, had the United States uh, insisted on Cuba not attending, so so that's one reason for why now. Um, a second reason for why now is uh, um, Obama's at the end of his term. He's thinking about the prospects for Democrats and Republicans in the next election. He's weighing um, changing opinion in Florida on the Cuban-American community, um, which the polls have consistently shown, and that he's simply making a political calculation based on domestic issues. Um, a third reason for why now is that the U.S. business community has actually been pushing for better relations with Cuba and better um, – it, now it's the United States that won't let them trade with Cuba or invest in Cuba. They want to. They don't care about ideology. They only care about profit. Um, and since Cuba has opened to foreign investment and tourism starting in the early 1990s, that is decades ago, well before Fidel Castro stepped down, Cuba's economy has been radically reformed and opened to the private sector. Um, uh, that U.S. business has been pushing for friendlier policies that will allow um, U.S. business in. And again, Cuba has no objections to U.S. business coming in. It's been U.S. government restrictions that have been standing in their way. Let's talk about um, politics for a second. We do have a presidential election coming up in 2016. Although typically the Cuban community in the United States um, are a majority of Republican voters, um, they're a very small population compared uh, to the uh, Mexican and other 
uh, Latino Americans and the Hispanic population of voters that we have seen uh, become a force uh, certainly to reckon with, fastest growing segment of the population in the United States. Uh, because there are some people that do want this, there is a split opinion, as you know, uh, among the Cuban Americans, especially many of which are in uh, South Florida, in the Miami uh, Dade area. Do, do you think that you know some of this was politically motivated to, you know, lengthen or make larger that uh, Hispanic base, or no? Because the Democrats already have the support of the major- overwhelming majority of the Latino voters in America. Um, I actually don't think that the issue of Cuba is um, of very high importance to Latino voters um, outside of the Cuban American community. Um, it may have some marginal importance, but I think issues like immigration, um, economic issues um, are, are much higher on the agenda for Latino voters in general. Um, so as you said, the Cuban American community, voting community in Miami is divided. Um, it's small, um, or in South Florida, not just Miami, primarily in Miami. Um, but the, the Cuban right is very well organized, um, and it's, it's also very strategically located, that is, with Florida being a swing state, so that even a small number of people who are very well organized and very well placed, as the right-wing Cuban-American community is, um, can have a kind of an outsize um, effect on, on U.S. politicians. Um, however, I think Obama was laying his bets in this case with the fact that the Cuban-American community has changed a lot. It's changed through generational shift. That is, that older generation is waning, and the, the children and grandchildren of that generation, people who were born in the United States, have a very different set of attitudes. Um, and also Cubans who have come in the 1980s, 1990s, and 2000s um, have much more of a diversity of political opinion than, than does that far-right first generation. Um, so the Cuban-American vote is now pretty evenly divided between Democrats and Republicans. Um, definitely Cuba is an important issue to them. And I think, um, you know, there's there's elements on the right elsewhere in the country that, that may be swung by this issue. But but I definitely agree with you that he's he's weighing and playing his political options here. Like this was well thought out. Uh, well, I, I would imagine it has to be. Before we talk about Cuba being removed from the uh, U.S. list of nations that sponsor uh, terrorism, uh, when you talk about imposing its will and we look at polls that President Obama is, uh, you know, has a higher popularity rating than Raul Castro or Fidel Castro among uh, polls in Cuba that have been most recently done, um, and also um, that you know the youth are definitely, like you said, more liberal-minded and, uh, you know, very much, uh, you know, want the freedoms that Americans have to be able to vote. And if they, you know, they want to play baseball, you know, on the circuit here uh, in the United States, and the list goes on. Do you think that many Cubans in Cuba want America to impose its will because they don't like the will that's been imposed on them by the Castros for decades? Um, Well, I would interpret some of those results that you mentioned slightly differently. Um, President Obama is indeed extraordinarily popular um, internationally, not only in Cuba. He's extraordinarily popular in Europe, elsewhere in Latin America. Um, And I think this is because he has been the first U.S. president in many, many decades, maybe ever, to um, try to promote a more humble, 
image of the United States internationally. That is, even though his policies, um, you know, look at the Middle East, have been quite aggressive, his words have been much less aggressive. And in his rhetoric, he is probably the U.S. president who's been the most willing to um, accept the sovereignty of other countries and the rights of other countries and to... um, to at least rhetorically take a step back from from the very belligerent and aggressive language that U.S. presidents generally use towards Latin America. So I think that accounts for a good deal of his popularity. Um, Whether young Cubans want a political system exactly like that of the United States, I don't think so. I don't think there's any evidence that shows that. Whether Cubans in Cuba have many, many complaints about their political and economic systems, absolutely. I just came back from spending... 10 days in Cuba, and um, in every trip to Cuba, uh, Cubans are not afraid about talking about their political and economic criticisms. Um, but I've never heard a Cuban frame those criticisms in terms of, we want to vote just like they vote in the United States. But don't they want freedom, access to the Internet? Don't they also want to be able to purchase things, uh, you know, even though, you know, many of us, myself included, would love to go step back in time with cars and architecture and things? Uh, you know, especially the youth, aren't they desiring some of the more advanced technology the rest of the world is privy to? Um, well, you know, be careful how you phrase that, because the rest of the world is not necessarily privy to fancy cars and fancy technology. Wealthy people in the rest of the world are privy to those things. But I would say everywhere in Latin America and elsewhere in the third world, people would love to have U.S.-style levels of consumption, and they don't. Or, or only a very small minority of the population does. Um, and that's, uh, you know, it would take me an hour to talk about all of the reasons for that. But um, Cuba is a poor country, and it's a third-world country, and whether people would like to have access to more material comforts, absolutely. And is that true of every other poor country in the world? Yes, just as true everywhere in the world as it is in Cuba. Um, I think that Cubans probably define freedom quite differently from the way it's defined in the United States. And I think you'd be hard-pressed outside of Miami to find very many Cubans who think that an imposition of U.S. domination in Cuba is going to bring them freedom. Um, Cubans lived under U.S. domination between 1898 and 1959, and they did not feel free. Okay. So, you know, what are the, you know, benefits for Cuba to do this? Because what I think is, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm sure you will, and I hope you do. I think Raul Castro knows that the people were more afraid of Fidel than him. Um, I think Raul Castro knows that he's got to do something about the economy or his days might be numbered. Even though he's not an elected official, certainly there could be some kind of a coup. I mean, you know, look at other countries that are much larger than Cuba. Uh, the youth, you know, cry out whatever they're crying out for. They topple their leaders, and they've been successful in doing that in a number of countries. Um, so, I mean, I visited Cuba numerous times when Fidel Castro was still in power. Um, I don't believe that Cubans were afraid of Fidel. Did they feel stifled? Did they feel dissatisfied? Did they feel critical? Oh, yes, wait, 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 wait. I, I got to interrupt you there. I, I, okay. I dis- I'll disagree with you, and I'll tell you why. Okay. What, one of my dear friends who's a Cuban-American, she lives in uh, Metairie, uh, Louisiana. Her name is Anna. Um, she was brutally raped by one of uh, Fidel Castro when she was um, a young girl, uh, one of his uh, people. And he, you know, pretty much, you know, uh, ruled uh, for many years, um, 
with, with violent force against the people. She and her family escaped um, to uh, Louisiana. As you know, there are a lot of people that go into New Orleans, you know, mm-hmm. as well as mm-hmm. South Florida, although South Florida is more populated. Some people, it depends on what boat you got on, basically. And, and when I lived in South Florida, I heard stories of just terrible and, and, and heinous oppression and abuse. And they definitely lived in fear, and that's why they were willing to risk their lives to get on tiny boats with not enough food or water and subject themselves to extreme heat and, and sun, you know, sun uh, temperatures, uh, the unknown, um, to, to, to flee that situation. Um, I mean, I obviously don't know your friend, so I don't know her story. Um, I certainly wouldn't deny that there have been instances of police brutality in the history of Cuba. Um, Again, that's true in every country. I certainly wouldn't deny that there have been instances of police brutality in the United States. But I think there's a big difference between um, acknowledging that there have been individual instances of police brutality in a country. It's a big leap from there to say that the people as a whole live in fear of their government. And I think you'd only need to spend about two hours in Havana to realize that um well if they're they're not in fear they don't feel oppressed um they certainly don't have the opportunity they don't have um god i mean with it with with everything i mean whether it's whether it's food or whether it's housing whether it's a job there just isn't the opportunity and choice that they know exists um, they're, they're not like North okay, Korea so that there, live in a bubble, right? Is I there mean, unemployment in Cuba? Are there people who want jobs and don't have them? Absolutely. Is there any country in the world where that's not true? Um, are there? People but aren't in Cuba? the people Most in Cuba? People. Aren't the people in Cuba uh, living on, on much much lower wages? Isn't the healthcare system in Cuba disgusting? Uh, <laughs> um, are people in Cuba living on lower wages um, than what? Than people in the United States or than people in Haiti? Ah, I see. Um, I mean, Cuba is a poor country. There's no getting around that. Um, Cuba is a poor country, and people who are poor wish they had more money. Um, People who are unemployed wish they had a job. Uh, People who don't have enough food wish they had more food. People who don't have enough variety in their food wish they had more variety in food. Um, But again, those things are and not you don't think, and, and sorry to interrupt, you don't think Raul Castro wants to provide some of those things because, quite frankly, then the people would bow at his feet. Um, but to transform a poor country into a wealthy country is not just a matter of making a decision of a president saying, oh, I'm tired of ruling a poor country. I think I'm going to turn it into a wealthy country. Like, it, it's a matter of making economic policies and implementing economic development plans, as we have seen in the history of the third world, um, it's a very, very difficult process to transform a poor country into a wealthy country. Um, And, you know, third world poverty uh, exists everywhere in Latin America to a much greater extent than it exists in Cuba. And there are many people poor people who would like to be rich. Um, but but it's not like it's a, de- a decision on the part of either Fidel or Raul, oh, I think I want to keep my country poor. No, it's a struggle to find a form of economic development that is going to be beneficial for the population of the country. 
Um, I thank you for being with us. We'll definitely have you back on again. Uh, <laughs> I'm learning a lot about Cuba. I haven't been there. I've always wanted to go there. I'm always tempted to go in from Mexico or Canada, but kind of tough with that American passport. Uh, Professor Chomsky can be found uh, on her website, avivachomsky.com. That's A-V-I-V-A-C-H-O-M-S-K-Y.com. Now is the chance to use reliable energy to grow your money with the Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. Our new investment product offers competitive returns, no maintenance fees, and flexible online access to your money. Make the reliable investment in reliable energy. The Dominion Energy Reliability Investment. To find out more, go online to reliabilityinvestment.com. That's reliabilityinvestment.com. This is no ordinary sub shop. This is Firehouse Subs. Welcome to Firehouse! Tired of overpriced lunches that underdeliver on flavor? Head to Firehouse Subs, where for a limited time you can get a $4.99 choice sub. Choose from a medium smoked turkey, Virginia honey ham, or roast beef. They're custom-made hot subs at a price ready-made to make you smile. Just $4.99, only at Firehouse Subs. Enjoy more subs, save more lives. Participating locations plus tax limited time offer prices may vary for delivery.